0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. The Big Book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Welcome to the final episode of Season 5 of Michael Easley in Context. We are obviously still in the middle of the Big Book cover to cover series, but. As we wrap up the Old Testament today, we are going to go on a short break from that series and move into season six this summer with some special edition interviews, more Ask Dr. E's, and some other fun things along the way. Then we will pick up our big book cover to cover series later this fall. You can always follow Michael on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and get more updates.
1: I want to go back to why I wanted to do this study and refresh your own memory, and in the ensuing days since the last time I preached, I kind of stepped back and said, why are we doing this? What's the point of this? We reviewed it when we began the series, but I thought it'd be good even for my own thinking to reframe why take on such a crazy task as trying to go through every book of the Bible. At the end of the day, I would just simply say, you'll never waste time in the Scripture. You'll never waste time opening the Word and putting your nose in the book. And if I was to somehow give you a gift, that that's something you want to do, that you don't have to do, that you get to do, not you should do, that you have the opportunity to do, not because you're checking a box, but that you want to spend time with the God of the universe, we have the mind of God in print. And if we don't take advantage of it, it's only to our loss. And just to keep encouraging you that this is not, we don't have to make it relevant. It is relevant to stay in the Word. Uh, Let's talk about the why of the series. Um, We need to be grounded in the Word. You and I need an ongoing grounding. This is the mind of God in print. So often when you're in conversations where people are uh, pooling their ignorance about, well, I think this means... and. I don't, I don't like the Bible when it says this, and I, I, I don't think that's what that meant, and we misapply that. Um, the only way to correct that is to have a grounding in Scripture. A Bible said a methodology of observation, interpretation, and application of understanding how to read it, how to, how to study it. You have to have that rigorous method uh, that, that builds into a system to where you don't have to check boxes or fill in blanks, you know how to read this. You know what to look for. And that grounding is so important. Secondly, he wants us to grow as his disciples. And these are non-negotiable. You and I need a grounding in scripture, and we need to grow as his disciples. Uh, What we commonly and casually call the great commission is something that it doesn't need a new business model. It doesn't need a new vision. It doesn't need rebranding. It doesn't need some new way of spinning it. Jesus Christ gave a crystal clear commission on what we're to do, to make disciples of all ethnos in the New Testament, the Greek word for ethnics, to make disciples of all nations. That was his command to his disciples and his followers. His last words, we might say, to make disciples of all nations. So if we're not grounded in the word, how in the world can we help other people grow to be disciples? And frankly, how are you growing? How am I growing as an ongoing learner in the word to be the kind of person he wants us to be? Um, there, there's a great debate in this, in the theological realm about sanctification. Uh, can you measure your discipleship? And you know that, that's a good question because we can look at other people and they're immature, or they're legalistic, or they're liberal, or they might not be a Christian. And when we do this, Right, Whether we like it or not, or whether we say it or not. And so if we reflect that back and say, how do we know if we're growing in the faith? Because if you and I are living on our laurels, we're not growing as disciples. You're never going to stop growing as a disciple of Christ until you and I are dead. That's my thesis. Because we want to continue to be more like Christ and less like our sinful selves. So we often talk about fruit, and they say, well, that person can't be a Christian because he or she doesn't have fruit. That's a subset study that is a misapplied set of scripture. You will know them by their fruit. It's about false teaching, not about the veracity of a person's salvation. So how do you know if a person is a Christian? How do you know if they're a disciple? The easiest way is to say, are you, am I changing? Am I a little less lustful? A little less covetous? Am I learning to control my temper Am I kind to my wife, to my husband, to my kids? Do I look upon others as more important than myself on occasion? Is there some change of who I'm becoming? Because if you and I are no different than we were last year, can I suggest you're not growing? You watch your kids grow, and well, they've got to learn to bathe themselves, to clothe themselves, to brush their own teeth, to pick up their room. Those are indications they're growing and maturing, correct? Correct. And if they'll they'll help their siblings, ah, right? That's real growth for a child to help a sibling. So we know this intuitively. Don't make it that hard. But ask and answer the question, and I do this a lot in my own life. Uh, I can be critical. That's sort of my knee-jerk response of people, of things. Lord, I need to be less critical. I need to look at people the way you see them, not the way I think they should or shouldn't be there's ways to do this. Don't make it too complex, but these two go together. A grounding in the scripture will keep us growing as disciples. It's really that simple. You don't have to have a seminary education to do these things. When the church was born, precisely with the uh, act of the Pente- we call it Pentecost, but we have the, the Feast of Passover and then the Feast of Pentecost. Those key dates is when God birthed the church. That concentric ring, if you took a rock and threw it in the pond, those concentric rings continue till today. It was literally the shot around the world, heard around the world, and it's not stopped. And so, if we're thinking about this, make disciples of all nations, the beginning of this church and how this grew, um, new creations live differently. If you are a forgiven sinner, you learn to forgive. If you are a child, you long for the milk of the word. If you become an adult, you want the meat of the word. That's a natural progression. Um, And disciples are men and women who want to continue to be grounded and growing. I want to go back to a couple of passages that are very core. You know these verses, but it's a good time to remind us why we're doing this. The first one is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let me ask you to read along with me. They were continually devoting themselves To the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching is essentially synonymous with studying the Bible. The apostles were teaching in this new church that's been born, and what they teach becomes your New Testament. So the people, and we have 3,000 and growing who have come to Christ at the experience of Pentecost, it's changed all of that area of the world. And it's growing like crazy, so much so that they have to recuse themselves to do this work. And then the people are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word devoting in devotion it sounds like this quiet time thing, or we're devoted to God. It's a pretty simple word. It means to attach yourself or to hold fast. To attach yourself or to hold fast. Listen to Dr. Stanley Toussaint, who summarizes this well in his little commentary on Acts, the activity of the early church was twofold. Believers first continually, continued steadfastly holding on to the apostles' teaching or doctrine. Second was fellowship, which is defined as breaking of bread and prayer. So it's, just, it's real simple. There's two things he's pointing out from this verse. You're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. There's an ongoing attachment. Fellowship's a broad word, another bible christianese word that means a lot of things to a lot of people if we're following luke's record here and the way the word is used it encompasses a lot of things you know we talked about from new york to la from north to south from a to z fellowship is a comprehensive word the baseline luke gives us is that it was breaking bread and prayer that's very interesting Because when you come together as believers, there is this—it's not just the Lord's table. It's not just communion or Lord's Supper. It's the communal aspect of eating together. There's nothing like it, is there? There's nothing like, even for people that don't know the Lord, having a good meal together. We went out last night with some friends, went down to to a a restaurant in downtown Nashville— And it was just a magical night. We got to sit outside. We had wonderful food. We ate way too much. I didn't sleep because I ate so much. It's a terrible, wonderful thing. (laughs) There's nothing like fellowship around breaking bread with other men and women that love Christ. There is an intimacy there. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching and this A to Z fellowship. Don't miss the second part of it, prayer. And it's Ken Boa's little book, Handbook to Prayer. And it is uh, consistently a book people find, this helps me pray. Some of you have sent me, when you travel, you send me a picture when you're in a hotel or somewhere and you've got your handbook of prayer in the hotel desk there. Because it's, you know, it's helping. It helps Cindy me. It's a great little tool because prayer is something we do repetitiously. When Jesus says uh, that the people think they'll be heard by their meaningless repetition, it's very convicting to me. I say the same things every time I open my mouth before I pray. And so this is a book that gets you back in the Word. It's just arrangement of Scripture put in a way that's easy to read with some subsets on what to pray for after you read it. If you haven't used it, I encourage you to do that. So we've got this breaking of bread and prayer, which forms an A to Z. Fellowship looks like these things, and this was designed. So the Word and fellowship are tied together, grounded in His Word, and growing as disciples. The other passage we've come back to a number of times, again you know this, is Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12, and I would like you to read that with me as well. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, the first thing you'll see in yellow, we've got four or five words. And there's an ongoing discussion debate between scholars and Bible students about are these four individuals or five? And it doesn't really matter. I I, I tend to lean for four, and I'll, I'll tell you why as we go through it. But let's talk about the order, the arrangement, and the reason Paul is writing this to the church in Ephesus. First of all, apostles were, the word means to send somebody. So they were the sent, S-E-N-T, the sent ones. And so Paul says these were the men, the gifted men he gave to his church. First of all, the apostolic messengers. They were commissioned to authenticate the words and works of Jesus Christ. The apostle was commissioned to authenticate, to prove, to demonstrate what this Jesus said was true, that he is who he said he is, that he is Messiah who was to come. That's why they come on the scene. So when there's a discussion among Jews, among pagans, what is Paul's emphasis? You need to know the Christ. I'm here to represent. I'm here to be the ambassador for. I'm here to teach you. I was sent to help you understand through the words and works of this man, he is the Christ. So God gave these men... To his church. Secondly, prophets. Now this is an interesting arrangement and it's an interesting point to discuss, not in great depth, but we obviously have Old Testament prophets and we have a small spattering of New Testament prophets. Nothing compared to the Old Testament. Uh, the prophet, different from the apostle, was chosen and commissioned but he was to speak the word of God to a people group. A little different than the apostle who was to authenticate the words and works of Jesus. The prophet was speaking to a people group, typically either Israel or, or Judah or the kingdom or the divided monarchy or sometimes a neighbor. And the prophet is saying, God says this to you. A little different nuance than the apostle. So we step back and say, God established his church with apostles and prophets. They were the agency he used to build his church. Now, if you were with us uh, in the Micah uh, passage we did last, last Sunday, uh, or Malachi, it runs together. Forgive me. It <laughs> runs together. Uh, we talked about the, the coalescing of Elijah and John the Baptist. And for many of I got a lot of feedback that, that i would never seen that before. Uh, so you have Elijah, who is symbolically the last Old Testament prophet, and you have John the Baptist, who is the first New Testament prophet, if you will. And that is a transition. And, of course, we have the transfiguration that is deliciously aligned with this. We've got John the Baptist who's coming out as a forerunner to speak the Word of God to people. He's not an apostle. He's speaking the Word of God to, to the, the uh, unrepentant Jew, saying, come back to your, to your God. And he was baptizing them. And if you've been around me long enough, you know the importance of the mikveh was a baptismal process that Jew did before he and she went up to worship. or Before they got married, it became sort of like a, um, like a christening almost. It was part of a process. When you go up to Jerusalem, men only, sorry, went through a mikvah, and they washed. Later women would do it, and it kind of amalgamated. So they were not, un- they were not uh, unfamiliar with the idea of a baptism, but this baptism is different than the mikveh, which was a ritual washing they did. And that's what John's saying. You have to repent and be baptized because the kingdom of God is at hand. And the Jew heard that and went, I get it because I'm not following the law. I'm not being a good Jew. And it struck their heart. And they went out in the wilderness to see this crazy guy eating locusts and honey. He looked like a vagabond. And they go see him, and they're being baptized because they get the message. So we have the apostles, the prophets, Elijah is the, we might say, it closes the chapter on the old. John the Baptist opens it on the new. But then we have the transfiguration of those two characters. John the Baptist and Elijah are aligning. This is the completion of the old, the beginning of the new. And then what does he say? I must decrease, he will increase. And that is the trajectory. Then, of course, we have, remarkably, the word evangelists. And this is the, it's a strange link to look at the picture uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. That, that should it, it strikes me. I don't know if it strikes you. If this is a gift that God gave to his church and it's only talked about three times, I'm going to pay attention to this. Let's look at these three ever so briefly. Acts 21, 8, we just know Philip was designated as an evangelist. The passage at hand, of course, we're looking at. And then 2 Timothy 2, uh, 2 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, where this is Paul talking to the younger Timothy, probably Paul's last uh, written uh, letter, and he says, "...but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of the evangelist," which is a differentiation from the gift. He says, "...do the work of the evangelist, uh, fulfill your ministry." So we've got this progression. Let's look again at Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. I know it's a bit redundant, but I want you to see it, and I want to read it one more time. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? Purpose. Reason. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And these are very important foundation stones to keep in place. Why did he give these four or five individuals? For the building up, the equipping of the body and the building up of his church. And we have to come back to that again and again. Now let's talk about these so-called foundational gifts for just a moment. Um, He gave some, not a lot, not a whole bunch. In fact, in the New Testament, we only have John the Baptist really as a prophet we got 12 apostles. We have one, of course, that doesn't end so well, and he's replaced, of course, by Paul. And we have others that were sent, but they weren't the same apostolic office that the original 12, were. we call the original 13, if you want. Um, and the sooner we understand this progression, the better it helps us if we're grounded in his word and growing as disciples. This is the terra firma. This is the foundation of what we believe and why we believe and how we live as Christians. We need to talk a little bit about this idea of gifting and what he gives and what we're natural about. There's a lot of discussion. If you're an older person, you know that you live every 10 years or 20 years, these things cycle. I've talked about this many times. There was a time when gift, you know, what's your gift? And there were gift assessments in churches and people were, they had classes on identifying your spiritual gift and how you serve. And then of course we have, you know, prophecy used to be a big thing. Uh, Probably very few of you remember the days when prophecy conferences filled up arenas. And they bring in these big speakers and talk about end times and prophecy. And uh, th- then you, uh, the revival. We're going to have a revival. And groups want to have a revival. They kind of want to force it, but they want to have a revival. You live long enough, these things come and go. The signs and wonders movement of the early uh, church, uh, uh, Peter Wagner and um, uh, Wimber. I mean, that thing, you know, that thing stormed the country and started going global. And everybody's looking, going, wow, they're really doing church. And then it's almost gone. The foundational pieces are to, look at it again, equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. If they don't do those things, they will not last. It doesn't matter how big or successful or important or how much money you throw at it, if they do not equip the saints for service and build up the body of Christ, it won't last. Because that's the only foundation that's going to be established for his church. Now, Let's think back a little bit about Paul and Timothy. Um, again, we're not the best students of history, but Paul and Timothy arguably had a larger global impact than anything ever. That's a pretty outlandish statement. But if you look at those maps in the back of your Bible and see that this little tiny area called Israel, and they go into the Greek power centers of the world, end up in Rome on to Spain we don't have records of, but to see the gospel move from this little bitty place called Calvary in an empty tomb on a rumor before technology, before print, what you had in print was hand-copied, and the word of mouth spread that gospel through a guy who was brazen named Paul who does these arduous journeys. When these people were stuck on these cruise ships for like, can you imagine being stuck on a cruise ship for three or four weeks? Ah. I mean, after a while, you want to get off. Three and four months on a boat to go places. Shipwrecked. Stuck on Malta for months on end. I mean, it was tough. You know, there was no first class. There was no business class. There was no air. You know, you were traveling hard, and you walked when you arrived. Paul and Timothy plant these churches all over. And then he's sending Timothy back to, you, you reestablish that, go back. So we talk about the pastoral epistles and we'll look at those in, in a few weeks. So we look at what Paul tells Timothy about how you do church. Paul planted them, Paul got them established. Now this is how you make them work. Still comes back to this passage. Nothing changed. That's why so many churches appeal to Ephesians 4:11 and 12 because that's the foundation that Paul gave us. He's God's choice to plant the churches. that Really, that concentric ring continues until this day. That one rock in the pond continues to have impact and effect. Let's talk about this gifted part, because I'm intrigued when he tells Timothy, do the work of the evangelist, and evangelist is only mentioned three times in our New Testament. If these are foundational pieces, why is this more prominent? Why aren't there sections on, this is how you do evangelism? Many of us have a dear friend who comes here from time to time, Bill Howard, who I consider Bill as a gifted evangelist. Uh, I have a friend in D.C., Jim Trafficking. He's a gifted evangelist. He shares Christ with people, and more people come to Christ uh, through his conversations. I, mean, I, I just marvel at him. I go, you, you must get, God just gives you all the low hanging fruit. <laughs> I mean, the fruit I get is this rock hard thing that's the top of the tree, been there three seasons, and I, my stick's too short. I mean, I, I never see what you see. He's gifted. And that's where that comparison thing can start driving you crazy and you can feel guilt and shame because I don't do enough evangelism. Stop. Do the work of the evangelist. Let's think about this concept. And we're in Music City. Uh, I have a friend who is a drummer, a.k.a. a percussionist. He is such a precise musician. Friends of mine have told me, uh, and I don't know if we still use Pro Tools as the primary thing, but they've told me when you record him on Pro Tools, he's digital. He is every bit as accurate as the computer, but he can do things the computer can't. He's a brilliant, gifted musician percussionist. Some of you know people in the music arena like that. Another friend of mine has a band, and he has a, a, a keyboard player, and they play a lot of you know, they cover songs, and he goes, every time he plays it, it's different. So there's the, there's the Continuum. One's a gifted musician who knows how to do it. The other one's sort of kind of free-flowing. It's not right or wrong. You think about a person who's gifted. Uh, Let's go back to childhood. Maybe that person played drums when he was in third grade. His parents bought him a drum set, and they went, oh. And uh, maybe you had your son or daughter on horses, or maybe you got them in a painting class or swimming or, you know, I mean, whatever it was, and you were trying to find how they're wired. And that's that's a parent's job. What's your interest? How can I help you in this area? Now, some are gifted people. And some, it it works. And so you and I think of gifting, we look at a yo-yo ma, or we look at someone who's an extraordinary person in his or her field. My neurosurgeon is a gifted neurosurgeon. There are lots of great neurosurgeons. This guy is unique. He can do things through a microscope that other neurosurgeons just go, wow how can he do that? He's not God. He's not perfect. He's just extraordinarily gifted. So the question is, is that innate or cultivated? Yes. Yes. There has to be some innateness, but you've got to cultivate it. Yo-Yo Ma didn't go on to Carnegie Hall having never played a a cello but one time. So there's a progression here. But when we think of the gifting in the New Testament, we've got to think differently. And this is, I, it's a game changer for me. I hope it is for you. Who, who gave the gift? He gave some. I would argue these men were not innately good at anything. In fact, from the apostles' record, they didn't do real well at all until the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, which prophet was innately gifted and was a, did a great job. With the exception of Isaiah, after he's cleansed of his sin, they're all reluctant and run the other way, literally and metaphorically. And they suffer and they complain just like you and I would. So when you look at the Bible, set aside the idea that super gifted evangelists or super gifted pastor teachers. This is something that God gives to his church. So let's say it's spiritually endowed, not innate, yet it still has to be cultivated. And that's where the Holy Spirit and sanctification come in. When I was um, uh, in uh, school, I, I'd, I'd never have done well at math. And uh, math is, you know, it's just not a vocabulary. People that are good at math think I'm an idiot. That's fine, I, I'm, I've been used to that all my life. Uh, I, I'm wired differently. My brother tutored me through Algebra 1 and 2 and Geometry and Physical Science over blood, sweat, and tears at the kitchen table. He was extraordinarily patient with me. My brother was a math major at Rice University. His goal was to be a math teacher. Bill Brown is a math genius. These people, I think they need therapy, actually, but uh, they think mathematically. I would argue that's a gifting or something innate that their brains lock onto. My brain locks onto different things than theirs do, or maybe yours does. So when we look at the spiritual life, the body of Christ is so magnificent because he gave some as you have a spiritual gift. I think I have a spiritual gift. Maybe some of you have more than one. And it's how you cultivate that to use it for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That is the, the effective way we look at these things and measure these things. <clears throat> when I was in, uh, <clears throat> after I'd done my, my master's, I started this doctoral program. And at the end of it, you had to write this little paper. And uh, they have a designation in American education called ABD, a- all but dissertation. And I think something like 90% of doctoral students are ABD. Because anybody can take courses, read books, be bored, and write papers. Anybody can do that, truly. It's not like you have to be super smart. You just have to show up, read the book, write the paper, take the test, do the assignment, keep on going. It's that little paper at the end where you're all on your own, and it is a monster. And there's so much bureaucracy and academic hazing that goes along with it, all that aside. So I had finished all my coursework except for my, I was ABD. Cindy never nagged me, but she encouraged me, uh, you need to finish that, you need to finish that, you need to finish that. One of my mentors died, and his dying words to me were, Michael, finish your doctorate. You know, Gee, thanks a lot. So, so I began going back, okay, how am I going to do this? So these projects you pick, and some of you have done this. You have to pick a project, problem, sub-problem. You go before a committee. You have to have a modality. How are you going to test it? Think simply of a pre-test and a post-test. We're going to test people here, and then we're going to do our program, our 12 weeks, our theory, and then we're going to test them. That's a pre-test, post-test. There's case studies. Let's go study 20 churches and see how they do X. Let's go study 20 clinics and see how they do Y, and then we'll come back with case study analysis, and then we see statistically, how do these numbers work? It Make sense? So you have to choose a modality, and they get really heady, ANOVA curves and all this kind of nonsense. So I'm going through to get my project approved, and I'm meeting with this guy. It's like having six hoops, and you got one bullet, and you got one chance to pull the trigger. And you got to get all these academic things aligned before you pull the trigger on your project. So I'm sitting with this guy, and I'm telling him, man, I'm not any good at statistics. I'm just telling you. For, for me to do the empirical data on this project, put a gun to my head. He says, totally serious. He says, well, you should enroll in a local college and take some courses on statistics. Four years of college, four years of a 136 master's program, three years of doctoral study. I'm going to go to a community college and take statistic courses. No, he was serious. And the one course that I hated and barely passed in college statistics, my brother wasn't there to help me. So what am I going to do? And I'm, I'm forlorn. So I, you know, I complain and whine, which I'm good at. Another faculty member said, Michael, hire somebody to do it for you. I went, excuse me? He goes, yeah, hire yourself a couple of grad students and give it as a project, and they can do the empirical. I said, you can do that? He goes, of course you can do that. Yahtzee, I can get this baby done. I just happened to have a friend who was at the church in D.C. who taught statistics at the Air Force Academy the last 12 years of his service named Buddy Wood. He's with the Lord now. If you'd have met Buddy, you'd have thought he fell off a truck in Mississippi the way he talked. Brilliant man. Another man who worked at the church was a retired captain in the Navy. That's like being a, you know, that's in, the, in the other world, they'd be a flag officer. He's a, of a nuclear sub. And the margins of his Bible are math equations. Weird, right? That's how he thinks. He could measure anything. I approach these two gentlemen. I say, this is. We'd be glad to help you. And I'm apologizing. Going, well, yeah. And and Buddy says, Michael, Michael, this is like candy. We love doing this. Now I truly think they both were sick and needed therapy, but they love numbers. And when I finished my dissertation, the research that they compiled and we went through would have been four, you know, they bind those books. You know, it had been like four more volumes. And so I had to appeal to the committee and say, what do you want me to do? You want me to in four volumes for this project or just give you a sampling? Give us a sampling. Now, here's the, here's the truth that very few people know. I won this big award for the best dissertation, scholastic achievement for my dissertation because Buddy and Ron did the statistics. Not me. Now, I did all the homework. I read the 116 books. I wrote the results and engaged with it. But they did what I couldn't do. Are you getting my point? These men had gifting in an area I had a liability. When God gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, he's giving those offices because we have a liability in some areas. And they're not hard to see. The apostles to go proclaim the gospel to authenticate the words and works of Jesus. The prophet to proclaim the word God told him to speak to people that were wayward in sin. The evangelist is the one who explains the gospel to them And then we'll get to pastor and teacher for just a moment. But it's striking to me, only three times is the term evangelist mentioned in the New Testament. So on the one hand, I think it's encouraging that it's not this heavy guilt shame. But I love where Paul tells Timothy, do the work of the evangelist. Grounded in the word, growing in discipleship. Part of that process are you and I understanding what this means? Because our objective, our end result, the P&L sheet needs to show equipping saints for the work of service that builds up his church. That is the theory. That's the thesis. That's the whole argument of what Paul is telling us in this passage in Ephesians. He gave some as pastor teachers finally... Um, I take this as one office, one gift. Some people take it as two. It doesn't really matter. Poyemon is the word for shepherd, for pastor in, in, in English. And the idea of, of, of caring for, of showing. We have all this wonderful imagery of pastoring in the Old Testament. And that's because you've never been around sheep in Israel. They're disgusting, stinky, stupid, repulsive animals. And when you know, God says to David, I took you from following sheep. We all, there's a lot of humor in the Bible. A lot of humor in the Bible. When you follow sheep, what are you walking in? He didn't say, I took you from leading sheep. I took you from following sheep, and I made you a king. So this pastoral imagery, he leads me by still waters, takes me into grazing areas, covers my head with oil, etc. It's so over-romantic, and it's so lost on our, our Western brain. This was a dirty, nasty, difficult job with stubborn, skittish, defenseless animals. They don't bite, they don't scratch, they can barely run. And if they're full of wool, they're in real trouble. And so that's the wonderful image of building up with pastoring, shepherding, and then teaching is a little bit more clear nomenclature. But I think it's a gift that's put together. Because typically, a person who is shepherding is also teaching. Let me explain how you do this. Let me show you what it's like. This is the reason we don't go that way. And we go that way. Well, every parent does this with your child. You're trying to teach them. You're pastoring them. You're teaching them. You're shepherding them. The only way you can shepherd is with the right information. You can't shepherd a child with the wrong information. When our children were younger and we would uh, work with you know homework and whatnot, <laughs> um, I'm good in literature. I'm really good in vocabulary. I have certain strengths I've never been very good at spelling. Uh, God's greatest gift, was, of course, was Jesus Christ. The second was air conditioning, and the third was caffeine, it was coffee. The fourth was spell checking. That's my view of the world. And so I love spell checkers. And so I'm in there doing homework with Jesse and Hannah, and Cindy's cooking dinner, and I'm doing their spelling, and I'm going, because that's not right! So she's correcting me for what I'm not doing, which was actually a way to get out of helping them do their homework, but I never told her that. Um, but there, there's just there's certain things you got to teach you got the right spelling of the word if you're going to get it right on the test. Don't overthink this stuff. A pastor and a teacher is a parent who's trying to help your child with the right information and to shepherd them and the right, put them together. The apostle who authenticates the words and works of Jesus Christ, the prophet who tells the word to a people that typically are living in sin, the evangelist who comes along and explains how to understand who Jesus is. He lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead. Any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised the free gift of eternal life. You're forgiven of sins, you're now a child of God, and you have to be grounded in the word and growing as a disciple." That's the evangelist, and then, of course, the pastor-teacher comes along and shepherds and directs and instructs people in the way. Let me give you three lessons, and we're done. Number one, God's Word is trustworthy. God's Word is trustworthy. For all the crazy things that pastors and teachers and people on television say about the Bible, you can trust in the Bible. I don't care who your favorite Bible teacher is. I don't have any desire to critique them. But be sure what they're saying is in the scripture, not just about the scripture. If they don't refer to something in the Bible, if they're just giving feel-good sermons, great. Whatever they want to do, God uses all kinds of people. Psalm 119, I'm going to read the first eight verses. How blessed. By the way, before I read this, the Old Testament believer loved God's law. We had this idea that you know, the law was a burden and they hated the law. Yes, the law was burdensome, but they did not hate it. They loved God's law. Maybe you're a person who loves the Bible, you love the Psalms, you love reading Scripture. Think about it that way. They love the Bible. So the psalmist says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, testimony, statutes, laws, uh, all have deep studies, but he's giving this survey. Psalm 119 is essentially about the reliability of the Bible. Who seek him with their heart, they also do no unrighteousness, they walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Verse 5 Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes, then I will not be ashamed. When I look upon all your commandments, if I am following your word, I don't look at the Bible with shame and guilt and I'm, I'm a horrible sinner. If I'm aligned with his scripture, then I look at it with joy and delight. Verse 7, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. God's word is trustworthy. Secondly, God's word is necessary. It's necessary. It's necessary. From Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Can you read this one with me? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. That sounds a little bit like Ephesians chapter 4. Equipped for the good work. Let's talk about some key terms. All scripture. Every word of it. All of it. Um, I have a friend. We were in seminary together. He's much more successful than I ever will be or was. And uh, he doesn't think the Old Testament matters anymore. And I've exchanged some emails with him. I don't get it. All. And by the way, when Paul's writing Timothy, what Bible is he talking about? The Old Testament. More than likely the first five books. Secondly, Scripture. Scripture. It's the word graphe in Greek, what is written down. And it's it's all all of God's word that was graphite, we get the word graphite, that was written down. It's inspired, "Theophanustus," a wonderful word. God breathed. It's a beautiful word. Um, Matthew 4, 4. And I I, I love sharing things that are new to me. I just saw this this week. i never made the connection before. It's like, this is so cool. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I'd never seen the connection of Theophanustus in the prior passage with what Jesus is saying, every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So this all scripture being inspired, you take them together, God's word was put through. We've talked about the big A author God and the little a author Paul. The big A author God and little a author Isaiah. God breathes the scripture, and the main outcome of that is for the adequacy of that man. Um, and then thirdly, God's word is authoritative. God's word is authoritative. From Second Peter, uh, Peter 1, verses 19 to 20, follow with me. So we have the prophetic word, more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. "...until the day dawns and, morning, and the morning star arises in your hearts." But know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. "...for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God." But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God." That word moved is a weather pattern word. It's used in and outside the Bible as moving things. It's a beautiful picture that God, we might say, blew into the sails of the little a author. They didn't just write this down because they thought it was a good thing to write down. Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The Old Testament goes on to give tests for a person who speaks the word of God. If the prophet is wrong, what would you do to him? Kill him. It was presumption to speak for God if God didn't breathe into the person. Well, the Bible is a corpus of literature that has been supernaturally intended in its writing, in its transmission over all these years, through multiple authors, through different Places in geography and time where it was written and compiled in this thing that you have. Hopefully, you have a real one as long as your technology is great. But you have a real one that you can enmesh yourself in, you can, you can marinate in it. And I want to leave you with a rather long quote from uh, William Geiser and William Nix. I, I pushed a lot of books on you historically. This one is for you know, the overachievers. It's called a, a General Introduction to the Bible. Don't let the title fool you, it's a tome. A general introduction to the bible but if you want to know like textual manuscripts and how we got our bible and alexandrian versus byzantine i mean this is the book you start with it's just a great reference book but geisler now with the lord uh brilliant man brilliant man he had a way of organizing things let me read part of their section on scripture's authority and necessity the bible is a biblos a single book it has two testaments better called covenants or agreements between God and His people. Those two parts of the Bible are inseparably related. The New Testament is in the Old Concealed, and the Old is in the New Revealed. I love that. I love that. The New Testament is in the Old Concealed. The Old is in the New Revealed. When viewed carefully, those sections of the Bible are obviously not arbitrary, but put together. Instead, they form a meaningful, and purposeful whole as they convey the progressive unfolding of the theme of the Bible in the person of Christ. The law gives the foundation for Christ, history shows the preparation for Him. (laughs) Finally, in poetry there is an aspiration for Christ and in prophecy an expectation of Him. The Gospels of the New Testament record The historical manifestation of Christ. The acts relate the propagation of Christ. The epistles give the interpretation of him. And in Revelation, it has found the consummation of all things in Christ. This book is otherworldly. It fits. It's sewn together. It's a masterpiece of human literature because it was a God-breathed document that we're privileged to hold, to have freely in so many different ways to read it. You will never, never waste time in the Word. You must be grounded in the Word and growing as a disciple.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? you can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.